Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to look at a very important passage of Scripture for us as a fellowship as well as what we do as a church and seminary together. And these are maybe some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The school actually started uh, in October of 1995. We incorporated, and a number of things took place at that time. Some of you, were anybody here back in 1995? You, you, you okay? Okay. Well, thank you. There's a, there's a good number. It's wonderful. Um, we uh, found a trailer. Uh, I think it was uh, 14 by 60, and they brought a trailer back and put it behind here, and that was our professor's offices, and that's where we started. And then uh, we finished this section here uh, behind, this used to be the gym, and then finished the section behind us within that year, and it was a very interesting way of having class. We had two classrooms, very difficult, classroom A and classroom B. And in between those two, we had a library, which is now the youth room. So if you pulled the walls down, especially on, I think it's the east side, you will still see the bookshelf still against the uh, block wall, and they just went over top of that and put, uh, as a sound barrier with a gym, uh, for the youth room, they put a, uh, the wonderful walls that you see there now. But God was so gracious in those days. But the most important thing was, as we were thinking together, uh, what would we like to do to really launch, the, launch VBTS? We thought that what we would do is invite a professor in, one of my favorite professors in years past by the name of Dr. Myron Houghton. He's now retired and, um, uh, in uh, Iowa. And he came and we, we asked him to teach for one week the doctrine of the Bible. And so for one week we were in the old chapel and he taught uh, for us that particular summer uh, the doctrine of the Bible. Some of you as church members were there. We had 17 students at that time, and they were in there. Just a number of us were gathered in the chapel because we felt like this particular uh, course is going to really set the trajectory for an, a conservative evangelical seminary. The doctrine of the Bible. 25 years later, as I stand before you today, I just want you to know we affirm 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like to read a couple of verses that precede that, verse number 12 down to verse 17. It says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness in order that, here's the purpose, in order that the people of God, the man of God, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good 
work. Father, as we have just a few moments to highlight this incredible passage of Scripture, which outlines your heart for us so that we are fully equipped for every good work. Thank you that you have not left us orphans, and you have done this through the presence of your Spirit within us, John 14, and you have not left us without your Word, and you've done that through inspiration, through the giving of your Word. Thank you that the Spirit superintended every single word that was written down by a human author so that the finished product is perfect, without error, exactly as you designed it. We hold in our hands this miracle. We call it the Bible, the book. It is the book, the book of all books. And so I pray that you would help us just for a few minutes to think as a church, as a seminary, as a fellowship of people about the book. For your honor and glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How do you understand the greatness of the Bible? The greatness of the Bible, brothers and sisters, is something really beyond human capacity. It is the eternal God, think of this, it is the eternal God who has eternal thoughts, who uses the imperfect means of human language and human authorship to divulge to us his perfect word written. Think of this, the eternal God, eternal thoughts being reduced to nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs in, in an imperfect language with imperfect human authors, but so superintended by the Holy Spirit so that the author's personality is not changed. So Paul writes like Paul, Isaiah writes like Isaiah. Jeremiah writes like Jeremiah, the Apostle John writes like John, and in their distinctive character, the Holy Spirit superintends their personality so that as they put down the very eternal thoughts of the eternal God, it comes out absolutely perfect. That's incredible. It's amazing. It is beyond our human understanding. The term that is used in many of your English Bibles is all Scripture is given by inspiration. But when I think of this for us today, brothers and sisters, I want us to think about the greatness of the book that we hold in our hands. And so when you think about the greatness of the book, the book that we hold in our hands, I wonder if this book is significant to us. I'm concerned about this. If the Bible really is significant to us, we have translations, we have commentaries, we have a library of almost 50,000 volumes that centers around the book. We have devotionals, we have podcasts, we have everything you could imagine to talk about the book, and yet there has never been a time in American history when we have been so biblically illiterate. Now, when we think about that, you can keep that up. Okay, when you think about that, <laughs> when you think about this, brothers and sisters, I want us to think through the greatness of the Scriptures so that when you open up the Bible, what do you do? Do you open up the Bible and just say, okay, now I'm just going to put my finger here and wherever it lands, that's where I'm going, or do you have a grid in your mind? 
That grid in your mind centers around two words. One is meaning, and the other is significance. So that when I open up the scriptures to read, I'm very aware that God breathed out these words. And so he breathed them out with a rudder. That rudder is God had a reason and a purpose for giving the word. So I want to know what the purpose and meaning is for that. So when I open up the Bible, the first question to me is not, what does this mean to me? The first question is, what does this mean to God? Why did God so superintend human authorship over a period of 1,500 years, from Moses all the way to the Apostle John? And over these 1,500 years, he, he laid out for us in a variety of ways his word. Why? Because we love variety. Just look at our clothes, look at how we look, look at our homes, look at our cars. We, we love right. We are made in the image of God. Just look at all the different flowers and look at the beauty around us. I mean, God is a God of variety. So when you open up the Word and hold it in your hand, you're going to have stories. You're going to have laws, commands. You're going to have genealogies, poetry, proverbs, historical narrative, prophetic oracles apocalyptic visions, biographical sketches, parables, sermons, letters, all of this within what we hold and call the book. There's a variety here. So clearly when you begin to read poetry, it's going to be a little bit different the way you enter poetry as that you would enter a letter. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be a little bit different when you look at apocalyptic vision vis-a-vis -vis historical narrative. They're going to be You're going to walk into the library of the book, and in the library you find 66 volumes, and these volumes are just loaded with God's mind, eternal thoughts inscribed in words that we can understand as imperfect people. So that when I come to the Word of God, the Word of God, when I come to this, I'm aware that God did not, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God did not deposit Adam and Eve, and then the next thing is give them the book. He did this over 1,500 years. He, he had a reason for this progress of revelation that is to be written under the superintendent of the Holy Spirit so that when it was completed by the Apostle John, he ends revelation with these words, don't add to these words and don't take away from these words. The book is done. It is finished. It is for us. And now here we as common people, we are able to come to the book and we're able to open it up. And when we open it up, we're asking the question, meaning, what does God mean by what he says? Why, why there? Why historical narrative there? Why poetry here? Why proverb there? Why do we have this apocalyptic image here? So meaning becomes extremely important to us. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. I'm so glad we have Awana here. Awana has a wonderful verse. It's, it's found in 2 Timothy 2.15, that we are approved workmen who don't need to be ashamed because we're cutting straight the Word of God. You see, it's going to be a work. It's going to take time. 
but it's going to be something that pleases our God as we cut straight the Word of God. And I just love it when our pastor stands up here and Sunday after Sunday he will give these words. We're going to study God's Word, and all of us should be saying, yes, yes. So when I look at the, the text in front of me, meaning is important, but there's a second word. Meaning become, can become academic. It can become very academic. Yes, I know the outline of Matthew. Yes, I know who wrote Torah. Yes, I understand how it fits Paul's 13 letters and the Gospels and the one history book. Yeah, I got it how the 17 books of historical ideals are here, and then you've got these prophetic, or these, this poetry, and then you've got 17 more books of prophecy. We call that the Old Testament. So, we've got, oh yeah, I've got all of this in line. But see, it becomes academic. But then there's a second question that becomes extremely personal. And the, the personal aspect is important because there are many people who will never make it to heaven who wrote commentaries on the Bible. Yeah. Think about this. Just as there's going to be preachers who don't make it to heaven because meaning is something that's important and that's foundational, but on top of meaning is going to come significance. Significance means this. It means that you, maybe put it in a question. Is the passage I am studying worthy of my full attention? See, here is the passage, but now will this passage be worthy of my full attention? That's significance. That's what makes the scriptures live. I hear a lot today about application. I'm not, I'm not against the word application. But I think it's a term that's been bent and shaped in so many ways, I don't get it. I think, number one, what does God mean by what he says? And number two, do I, do I value what God says? If I value it, then it's going to be like, I love the NASB translation of Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might set against thee, but then NASB turns around. Thy word have I, anybody know the word? next word? You NASBites? Treasured. Thy word have I treasured in my heart so that I don't sin against you. You see, that's moving from meaning to significance. I treasure this. It's not, it's more than just memorization. It's more than, than uh, having Bibles in my house. It's more than having the right commentaries. It's, it's coming to the place where in my personal life, where this passage means everything to me and demands my full attention. So, let me give you, before I go to Second Timothy, let me give you an illustration. Let's go to the first book of the New Testament real quickly. First book of the New Testament, because Jesus does it for us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I used this recently in the seminary a couple of weeks ago in chapel. And in Matthew chapter 5, you have uh, an amazing display of Jesus' wisdom. But I want you to look at verse 21. I want you to see this. So watch, watch this. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
you shall not murder. What does that mean? It means this, Jesus says, whoever murders is going to be liable to judgment. Now, in the towns, in the Jewish towns, they had a court system that whenever there was a heinous crime, there'd be 23 people in the court that were going to adjudicate that particular heinous crime. And so Jesus is going to give the, the meaning, okay, don't murder, don't extinguish somebody else's life, don't take a knife and rid them of their existence. Because if you do that, you will stand before a court of 23 people, and they're going to hear and see exactly what has taken place, and then if you did this, you're going to be condemned before all of these people. So he says here in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. This is not a suggestion. Don't do it. And whoever does it, you are going to stand before 23 people, and it's going to be announced that your whole world, your whole world is going to change. But now he moves to significance. But let me tell you something, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to punishment. Judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. What, what is taking place here is Jesus is moving and helping us see that the term murder encompasses more than a knife in someone's hand to physically extinguish someone's life. It can be a spear from your heart. So that anger is murder. And 1 John 3 makes that very clear. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, 1 John chapter 3. But Jesus is helping us understand the significance of the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Same words. So don't murder. And by the way, just so you understand the significance of it, you cannot murder with a knife in your hand or with a spear in your heart. And he says this in verse number 23. He, he moves it a little bit. He said, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you are the cause of your brother's anger. See, in verse 22, it's anger within you. In verse number 23, it's anger within your brother. You have done something and caused that brother to be angry. What do you do? Verse 24, leave your gift therefore at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. You say, okay, I, I got that. So in other words, I, I just stop praying, I call him up on the telephone, and I get it right, and then I can go back to praying. Yeah, okay, maybe that's the way you see it, but let me tell you how Jesus has seen it, because this sermon was given in Galilee. Galilee, if you look at Capernaum where Jesus lived, on the north side of, of, of the Galilee, sea, Galilean Sea, is 90 miles all the way to the altar, because the altar is in Jerusalem. And so a good Jew would not go through Samaria, it's three days straight, but it's an extra two days to go around Samaria. So it's a five-day journey. He's made a five-day journey, and so he makes this journey. He's getting ready to offer at the altar. It's the law of the central altar, Deuteronomy chapter 12. One altar, the place where I put my name, is the only place that you can offer these offerings, and it's going to have a Levitical system around it to protect. 
So when you go to do this, it's no easy task. He is saying, you made a five-day journey down, telling these Galileans, now you make your five-day journey back, and then you can make another five-day journey down and do the altar, and then make your five-day journey back. You're saying, that's a lot of time. Exactly. It tells you exactly how God thinks of anger. So guess what's going to happen? If the community of the Galileans take this serious, be, seriously, before they ever go to the altar, they're going to make sure that my neighbors, I'm not causing anger within my neighbor. I'm going to make sure there's not anger in my heart. I want to get it all right so that when I go to the altar, I'm not making another 15 days to finally get back to work. See, this, we move from meaning to significance. So that when you open up the very word of God, God knew that where we're going to be in the 21st century, just like in the first century. And so God is the bridge, even though some of the customs seem unique. Even though some of the, the ways that they lived and operated in an agricultural society don't necessarily gel with what I do at the office five days a week. But that's okay, brothers and sisters, because God is the bridge between what was written and what you are reading today. And because God is the bridge, I go to God, find out his meaning, and then I say, okay, what is the significance of this as that begins to morph its way in my mind and in my heart as a good workman as I'm rightly dividing the word of truth? Meaning and significance. Now, with those two things in mind, you can see why the words of Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch are so important in Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? Turn back with me to 2 Timothy. Those of you who have heard me preach know that I usually take the first 25 minutes for introduction, so I just did that. But, but let me just help you through this text, because this is the, this is the text. I love uh, Walter Liefeld. Walter Liefeld is such a great guy. He's still living today. He started teaching at Trinity in 1963. Some of you are very familiar with Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. Remember Ed McCulley? Uh, those guys who were killed uh, January 8th, 1956, by the Alka Indians. Pete Fleming. His wife was Olive. They got married just a year before that took place, maybe 18 months, a little more than, more than a year. And uh, Walter Lifefield married Olive Fleming and lived for years. He was a professor for years at Trinity in Chicago. I have his commentary on First and Second Timothy, and his commentary, he writes these words, verses 16 and 17 are the strongest statement in the Bible about itself. That's a great way to look at it. You hold in your hand, verse 16 and 17, the strongest statement in the Bible about itself. And there are three clauses that just jump off. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Two, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Three, all Scripture is here with a purpose, to equip the people of God for every good work. 
So when you begin to take these apart, it, it is so phenomenal, men and women, what's taking place. All scripture is theopneustos. It is the, the very breath of God, the very breath of God. When you speak, the idea it's spoken and what was spoken, the very breath of God is written. And it has this incredible stamp on it. It's the stamp of inspiration. The word scripture, graphe, is a, is a term that's found 51 times in the New Testament and usually speaks of the Old Testament scriptures, but not always. And here is one of them. In fact, if you just hold your finger here and just go back a couple of pages, look at, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And you have an amazing statement that you can pass over as the Apostle Paul is writing about the elders who rule well. Verse 18 says, for the scripture, there it is, the graphe, there it is. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 25. And, and you have quotation marks, scripture number two, the laborer deserves his wages. That's Luke chapter 10. So very carefully, the apostle Paul has laid out that scripture is not only Deuteronomy that Moses wrote, but scripture is also what Luke wrote. That helps you in your chronology of thinking of when the Gospels are written. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out. It, it, scripture has this stamp on it. It is a self-attesting stamp. And the self-attesting stamp is, we call it, inspiration. It, so that this book, all the books within, have a stamp on it from the Holy Spirit. This comes from the breath of God. That's unique. Um, it, it takes us back to the opening chapters of your entire Bible in Genesis. As you go back to Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered it. This is extremely important. And what's the next thing that's going to happen in, in, in verse 3? God breathed and said, darkness is covering the, the Hashemayim, the heavens, and the Eretz, the earth. And all of a sudden, verse 3 breaks out, God breathes and says, let there be light. Boom! There was light. God didn't have to put his name on the sun and write, by God, G-O-D. I did this. This is my signature. You know, we've been trying to imitate light ever since. I mean, and then I go in my house almost every day, there's a light bulb out. I can't see as well at night, so I have to wear the glasses at night. And he light. So what is that telling us in Genesis 1? It's telling us this. That it's telling us that, that Scripture, okay, Scripture breathed out by God like creation, that it, it exists because of God. The only explanation that the Hashemayim and the Eretz are covered in darkness, totally enshrouded, and then God says, light! Boom, there's light. The only explanation is God. So we have Scripture. 
The eternal God with eternal thoughts using imperfect means so we have eternal words. The only explanation for that is God. He breathed it out. And to make it clear, it became extremely effective. It is extremely effective. Just think how you have a barren earth and a bland heavens. God speaks light. God speaks birds. God speaks. And all of these things begin to happen on, in the creative week, showing to you that this only can come from God. Just speak, and all of a sudden there's a bird flying. I mean, usually you watch in the springtime a mother bird pushing the little baby bird out, trying to, but these birds, without any practice, there they go, they're flying all over the place. Trees have their little circles, their age circles. Light. It takes us so long, the scientists say, for light to reach the earth, and boom, there it is. So Scripture, the very breath of God, God didn't need to write in every single book, okay, now let me tell you, this is from me. Listen, when you read the text, the sovereign God is so effective that there's nothing like these books anywhere in the universe, nowhere. So when I look at what he says, Scripture is, has this self-attesting stamp, boom, breath of God. And the breath of God is foundational because you're going to move from a predicate adjective, which is what inspiration is in your text. All Scripture, here's the subject, inspiration giving to this subject a quality unlike any other writings in the world. And look at your text. After that, it has the word and. Predicate adjective number two, it's useful. What is it useful for? Well, it's useful for four things. In teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You see, teaching, because Jesus says, sanctify them through the truth, thy word is truth. Here's truth. So we hold truth in our hands. So what's it teaching? It's teaching truth. What is truth? What is reproof? That's what is not truth. What is correction? That's how, and I'm so thankful for this. This is how to be restored to truth. And then finally, training in righteousness, this is how to stay on the path of truth. I love what Francis Schaeffer does. I've been reading through his works again. I, I love what he does. He, he says, one way to understand something is look at a sentence and then turn it around the opposite. If it's a positive sentence, turn it around negatively. If it's a negative sentence, turn it around positively. So let's just, let's turn it around. Let's turn around. All scripture is God-breathed. Let's turn that around and put it negatively. It would sound like this. Without scripture, there's no written revelation from God. Let's turn this one around. Scripture is profitable for truth, okay? Without Scripture, there is no standard for truth. So you just flip it around. And look at the third one. The third one here is in order that, it's, it's purposeful, in order that the man of God, I, I love this. In, in, in very few times in the New Testament do you see this phrase, man of God. 
So commentators spend a lot of time on it, but let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, this is extremely important for us because in the Old Testament, a man of God was one who God revealed his truth as a prophet and he spoke the words for God to the people. And now he is saying the scripture, which has the self-attesting stamp of inspiration is useful so that you stay on the path of truth. And if you get off, it'll correct you. It'll say, this is not truth and this is truth. That's how effective the word of God, the book, is. In order that the people of God, think of this, we're in a group now who has received the very breath of God. If I, if I hold my hand here and I blow, I can feel my breath about this far. Everything outside that is, is friends. Everything inside here is called my intimate zone breath. Scripture is the breath of God. Scripture is God bringing his people into his intimate zone so that his eternal thoughts can now be seen, read in your language with nouns and verbs and adjectives, as imperfect as the language is. You know God. You know God. And Scripture, I love this, Scripture, it says in the text, will equip the people of God to be complete. And I, and I love, I love the, here's where I love the King James Version on this, thoroughly furnished. I love it because there's two sides of the word equip. On the one side, it's a, it's a term from the first century where a wagon was being outfitted to make a long journey. And in those days of the first century, 2,000 years ago, there wasn't Holiday Inn. I know it's a surprise to you, but there wasn't a Holiday Inn. There weren't cell phones or email. All that kind of thing. In fact, the people probably didn't even know you were coming. That's a delight when they show up. They didn't know you were coming. So, so you have to fully outfit the wagon and think of everything so that your journey will be complete. And so he takes this image of, an, of a wagon to be outfitted so it can be complete, and says, now this is what the, coming into the intimate zone of God, this is what the book does for you. It brings you into an intimate zone with God so that you, you are completely outfitted. And he says, tells you, for every single good work. Now, I'm not against seminars. I'm not against all kinds of things that we have out there, but here's what the problem is. If, if we've got all of this stuff going on, and by a touch of a button I can hear that preacher, by a touch of a button I can hear that teacher, by this and that, and yet there's such biblical illiteracy in our churches today, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So here's what I say. If you take the scriptures, here's the beauty. You're the people of God. You can take the very breath of God, walk directly into the intimate zone of God, and find out his eternal thought. You don't need an MDiv. You don't need a PhD. You don't need to have the word deacon or pastor or small group leader behind your name. Doesn't matter. I say to you, brothers and sisters, it is extremely important for us to capture what Paul is saying in this final—even in this final letter, Paul is writing, he's about ready to die. By the time Timothy gets it, if you just chronicle first century travel, by the time Timothy gets it in his hand, Paul's already dead. So we're like Timothy. So we're reading this, and the whole church is going to get it because at the very end he says, now, grace be with you all. It's a second person plural. 
So the, the whole church is hearing this. But let me conclude this way. Let me, let me conclude with just maybe two points to help you as I look at these two verses. Number one, these two verses have a context. I want you to turn back to chapter 3 and verse 1 real quickly. Chapter 3, verse 1. And look, look how this chapter, which ended so gloriously, equipped for every good work, how it began. Understand this, that in the last days, there's going to be times of difficulty. Some of your translations have dangerous times. Some of them have fierce times, great difficulty, challenge. What, what are the last days? The last days are in between the two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second. These are the last days. So guess where we fit, brothers and sisters? Right here. And so he, he takes, takes a, a, a few moments to help us understand, help Timothy help us to understand this. That's what he said, understand this. Between the two comings of Jesus, it's not going to be easy. Okay? Now, I know we love our comfort, but that's not what this is about. This is real life. This is real life. This is facing difficulty. This is facing doctors' words. This is facing a cemetery. This is facing the hospital where people today are weeping because of what their child is going through. This, this is a real-life scenario for us today. It's difficult. It's challenging. And, and the most challenging thing, verse 2 says, people just love themselves and they love their money. That's how, that's how he gives 18 incredible qualities here about these difficult times, but he starts with lovers of self, lovers of money. Look at the end of verse, uh, verse 4. They, they are lovers of pleasure, and clearly they're not lovers of God. See, God is just not in their thoughts. They love themselves, they love their money, and they love their pleasure. And then he adds this in verse 5, and they have this appearance of godliness but it's not real. So let me just say that to look at the meaning of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that's one thing for us to do, but the significance is this. God knew very well 2,000 years ago that you're going to be facing some very difficult times, and truly as the end comes, as it gets closer to that coming of Christ, truly it's going to be more and more difficult, no question. It just sort of exponentially grows, and it's powerful, and it's, no, where do we turn? What voice do we listen to? And then he adds, let me tell you something, my word has been breathed out by me, and it's useful for you. It'll really help you migrate in a world with a lot of voices because it's truth and what's not truth and how to, be, how to be reconnected to truth and how to stay in the path of truth, and it'll fully equip you so you can do every good work you need to do. I, I've given this for you. So the third, first thought of significance is that this is very important for us as brothers and sisters, that, that when we pick up this Bible, it's not yawning, it's not just open up our finger, open the Scripture, take our finger and say, okay, now I'm going to read this, oh, this feels so good to me, I'm going to have a great day today. Really? But then there's the second thing I think is important, and it deals with all the children in our church. Look, if you will, at verse number 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, how from 
childhood. You have been acquainted with these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the context helps us be aware of how difficult the times is and that God's word is sufficient. It's adequate. It, it can accomplish what it needs to do, equipping us for every good work. But secondly, let's take your children. I've actually had people say, when I was pastoring, I, you know, people have said, I'm so glad my kids aren't growing up in this day and age. I said, what in the world? Really, there's something wrong with God? Something wrong with his word? Hey, this is an exciting time for us because the darker the darkness around us, it doesn't take a very bright light to shine in that dark place. And the word of God is effective. It's got this stamp on it, breathed out by God. It's useful. And so he says to Timothy, he said, now, now Timothy, I know you don't have a saved father. You find that in Acts 16. You only have a saved mother. And, and by the way, grandma was saved. Chapter 1, same book here, chapter 1, your mother, Eunice, your grandmother, Lois. And, and all these teachers that have been shaping you so that this scripture is really going to protect your children. Now, look back at chapter 3. We're here at chapter 3. Look at verse number 7. Here's, here's these, the brilliant people of our age, verse 7. They're ever learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. You see, without the word, they will never get on the path of truth. Something else, look at verse number 5. See, they have the appearance of godliness. The appearance of godliness. That's significant for us. Because in verse number 12, and delete, indeed, all those who live, desire to live God in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and there's going to be imposters, there's going to be difficulty, and all this is taking place because I want really, truly the genuine product. I want that which not just appears godly, I want those to be godly in Christ Jesus. Not the appearance of it, but the reality of it. So, when you look at the context, the context tells you you're fully equipped, brothers and sisters. You're fully equipped. Go face the world. There's the door. On your mark and set, go. Oh, by the way, make sure you're an approved workman because this is how you get through it. Number two, remember, remember the kids God has given to you? Okay, all these kids God has given to you. Oh, and grandkids, thank you. All the kids God has given to you, here they are. All right, here they are. And guess what? From a child, they, it, the word will so, sh it'll make them wise where these people, they can never come to the knowledge of truth, but, but your child can come to the knowledge of truth, grow, develop. You can say to your son and to your daughter, you can hear the voice of God. Really? Yes. Let's open it up and see. God breathed this out. You can, you can hear God's voice. Can I say this to you? This is what Scripture means, as one theologian wrote. Scripture is God's Word in such a way to disbelieve or disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. Did you get it? Because this was breathed out by God, this is the intimate zone of God. If you go against the Scripture, 
Well, I know what that says, but no, if you go against the scripture, to disbelieve, disobey this is to disbelieve and disobey God himself. Okay, final illustration. Would you turn back with me all the way to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 3, and then we're done. 1 Samuel chapter 3. I love the way 1 Samuel 3 begins because Samuel was ministering to the Lord, ministering to the Lord in the presence of everybody, in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare, okay? Speaking of that direct revelation, it just was rare. It wasn't coming to Eli, it wasn't coming to his ungodly sons, it's just rare. There's no frequent vision. Now go to the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 19, 20, and 21. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with them. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. That's an amazing statement about Samuel. He let none of his words fall to the ground. You got the picture? He's not carrying around a bucket with a lot of holes. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now catch this, verse 21, watch the words. And the Lord appeared again and again and again and again at Shiloh. Four, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How? Through the word of the Lord. How did Samuel see the glory of God? Through the word of the Lord. How do you see the glory of God? Through the word of the Lord. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It's in your language. You've got all kinds of translations. Through the word of the Lord. 